Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers the second issue of Chris Morris's online satire newspaper, The Smokehammer. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers, that no one has ever seems to, is writer and director Matt Lee. Matt, what are you up to? Where can we find it? Like everybody else right now, I guess I'm spending a lot of time indoors. But yeah, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Matt L, M-A-T-T-L. Yeah, working on some scripts right now and spending a lot of time archiving TV shows mentioned on Looks Unfamiliar. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm wondering if you're either writing a script inspired by or just archiving your first choice, which is something I'd completely forgotten about. Here's a clip from it and we'll find out what it is in a second. <laughs> And welcome back. And coming up soon, our phone-in poll and a reminder that today's topic is should Siamese twins sleep together? But first, if, like me, you thought the topiary meant having too much to drink, then you'd be wrong. Because it is, in fact, the ancient art, dating back to Roman times, I believe, That's right. of cutting the common or garden hedge into weird and wonderful shapes. And with us today, we have the country's foremost expert on the topic, Mr. Ned Hawking. Welcome. Any relation to Professor Stephen Hawking? We had him on the show a while ago. What a man. OK, that was Nigel Plater and Susie Blake in Wake Up With Libby and Jonathan. Matt, what was this? This was like a one-off ITV show of a kind of Richard and Judy kind of type show. This kind of bickering couple who had a great on-air persona, but they hate each other off-air. I remember taping it at the time because I remember hearing about it. Uh, and I was, you know, 1994, I was a big fan of young ones at that point so anything with Nigel Planer in it I could get my hands on but I honestly have kind of forgotten almost everything else about it at this point too I just kind of remember the visual look of the show it's very bright and orange yeah it was a one-off in 1994 kind of satirizing I mean the obvious thing is to say you know it's this morning with Richard Maitley and Judy Finnegan but there's also people forget there was Good Morning with Anna Nick on the BBC at that point oh yeah, which is yeah. more or less a direct clone of this morning except they had Simon Bates in the middle doing our tune sitting on the edge of the sofa <laughs> i remember watching this and thinking it didn't quite work for two reasons one of which is that it never really works if a tv channel sends up their own output and then expects you to watch the thing it's parodying and take that seriously it's a bit like the way mm. black lace's record label did a book called 101 uses for a black lace record which, you know, hang on, you're expecting people to buy their records. Why are you selling a book as well about how bad they are? That was a problem for me. I hated this morning. And yet it was saying, ah, isn't it funny? Isn't it rubbish? But yeah, you're the people that make it. But the other thing was, there were loads of things on the BBC that did this around the same time. It did it. I don't know if they necessarily actually did it better. It's just they seem to have more impact because they weren't on ITV. There was Victoria Woods' All Day Breakfast, which also had Susie Blake in. Life, Death and Sex with Mike and Sue on Radio 4. And there was also This Morning with Richard Not Judy, which is basically... Right. They weren't trying to emulate the host at all. Richard Herring and Stuart Lee just sort of trampled all over the format as they saw fit. But do you remember enjoying it? Or do you remember finding it a bit... Off beam. I think at the time I remember liking it enough to have kept the tape I taped it on. I had that for a number of years, but I can't remember watching it ever again. So I don't know if I sort of taped it out of this kind of future idea that maybe somehow it might be good in the future. But my only memory of it really is just how bright the kind of color scheme was on it. It seemed like, you remember how brightly colored Filthy Rich and Cat Flap looks in comparison to the young ones? Like it's such a bright, 
picture. And I, that's kind of my, yeah, that's my kind of memory of it, is that it's such a bright show. I did find the tie-in book that I found on Amazon. I'd love to see that too, but it's like, you know, 80 quid or something. Yeah, they obviously thought it was going to be big. I mean, there was a history of Nigel Planer had done some quite successful books before then. Notably, there's Iron Actor, the Nicholas Craig book. See, Nicholas Craig's forgotten now, but that was his kind of lovely actor character who yeah. built a brilliant sort of fake career for himself, which is utterly convincing. And I'm told that when he first launched Nicholas Craig, he was doing some readings on Radio 4 as if it was an actual actor. People didn't realise it was Nigel Planer at first. Then he did this tremendous book, Iron Actor. And obviously, am I right thinking he co-wrote the book as well? So they're obviously thinking this series is going to take off. It just didn't, for whatever reason, it didn't go past one, well, I assume it was the pilot episode. Although apparently the original script was called Let's Get Divorced and was a bit darker. Yeah, I mean, I I can only imagine that they had plans to make more of them but i think it was part of like another wasn't it part of something else like kind of a sort of thing that did pilots they showed like six or seven episodes of different things over a few weeks that's, that's kind of how my memory of it like a like a comedy lab kind of thing they did on channel four there were quite a few pilots that they tried on itv around that time that never took off and i can't remember whether it was an actual strand or whether they were just here's a pilot here's a pilot but there were things like there was wild oats which is leslie grantham as a man who jonathan morris turned up as his long lost son and all I ever saw that was the trailer where it said, you know, and on Thursday, whatever, wild oats. And then he just walked in and said, hello, father. And Leslie Grantham did the shocked face. <laughs> there was one about a family, kind of an anarchic family that started with them singing sort of a thousand men in their car. And I don't even know what that was called. That's all I remember about that. There was a Gale Tuesday pilot that wasn't like Gale's World. There was, I think the Grimleys was originally just a pilot. So ITV were trying to find a new big sitcom around that time. I don't think they ever actually did, did they? The last sitcom I remember, and you know, I've been out of the UK now for like 15 years. The last thing I remember was, you know, something like Hardware or something like that. And that was, that was a lot later than that. You know, that was mid 2000s, late 2000s. Yeah, I can't think of anything, honestly. I can't think of the last time I think of tuning into a comedy show on ITV. Hardware was a rarity because it actually went on for two series as well, whereas most of them, they were lucky to get to the end of one. I mean, there was the high stakes with Richard Wilson where they made two series and they showed one and they just thought, yeah, let's not bother showing the second one. I mean, ITV's always kind of struggled in my mind for comedy stuff. Even the things that were successful later on, like maybe even badly, they, they transferred to the BBC before they became successful, really. So, I mean, obviously, I know you are huge long term fan of this morning with Richard not Judy I assume you liked Victoria Woods all day breakfast I don't know whether you've heard life death and sex with Mike and Sue or not but that was quite good as well but what do you think the appeal was of everyone having a go at the this morning format around that time wasn't there something around that same time which Richard Maley was caught shoplifting or something and I, I can only imagine they're kind of punching down on that uh, we should say he was found not guilty as well because it was something like he was 80% more absent-minded than 52% of people something like that anyway something but, like that um, he, he left court without a stain on his name let's let's be, <laughs> let's be clear about that yes 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 but yeah I, I mean I can only imagine something like that either that or but just punching down on the popularity of the show. I mean, the show was pretty ubiquitous at that point in time, I guess. By then, they were they were household names from that show alone. And I don't know, you know, it wouldn't be that much longer after that they went to Channel 4, of course. I will say, though, that when This Morning was in production, it was, for most of the time it existed with Richard and Judy, it was made in the Albert Dock in Liverpool. 
I hated the show, but they were harmless enough people. So yeah, I think that's yeah. why Rich and Stu got it right. They weren't attacking the presenters. They probably right. quite liked that, actually. They were just attacking the format, which is just the most banal format that there has ever been. Yeah, I mean, you know, when we have shows like that here in the States, too, you know, like they've heard that those kind of shows seem very sort of generic. And I'm sure every country around the world has its own kind of version of that same kind of put people on a couch and talk about whatever, you know, but... Yeah, it seems it's just such a strange format to like to pick as a as a sitcom, traditional sitcom certainly. Like it didn't seem like even if it, if it went went to a series, like how long would that have lasted really? You know, maybe a season. You know, but like doesn't seem like it's gonna be a, a long term show. I mean, they had they clearly had designs above this to make, to make a book at least, which seems awfully suspicious. But yeah. Okay, well, your next choice did actually make it to a series, but I think the odds were stacked against it from the beginning. It was never going to become even as popular as Wake Up with Libby and Jonathan, except until somebody else saw it and more or less copied the idea. Here's your hot water. Thanks, honey. Look, I'm sorry about what just happened. We we, we just thought you were here for our Halloween party. Are you really a cop? Sure. (laughs) And you can pack yourself here as long as you want, dear. (laughs) Another big spender. Hey, hey, sweetheart, this ain't the Salvation Army. You want soup, you water soup. Augie, look, she's just a poor old lady. She's not hurting anybody. Leave her alone. I got an image to protect here. Who's going to sit down and have dinner next to Our Lady of the Hobos? Augie, she's not like that. Look at her. You can't do that. Do you have work to do? Then you do it. Not a bum. And I didn't come here to spoil your Halloween party, mister. I'm just low on cash, and I'm tired. That describes just about everybody I know. <laughs> okay, that was a couple of witty zingers from Park Street Under. Matt, what's the story here? So Park Street Under is my obsession of late, I would say. So I'm, I'm from the UK, but I moved in 2008 to Boston, the United States. And so everyone knows Boston for Cheers, which ran for a number of years and was very successful. Most people probably have not heard of Park Street Under, which is a locally made sitcom here in Boston that has more than a passing similarity to Cheers, I would say, to the point where you would wonder if, if that happened now, it would just be a straight rip-off. You know, it's, it's like someone took a cookie cutter of the show and made it on NBC and called it Cheers. It was just on a local station, wasn't it? WCVB-TV. I think that's how you say it. Yeah. That's the local CBS company here in Boston. So, that, I mean, they are a big broadcaster in New England, certainly. And they made three seasons of this show. It was made uh, locally on a, on a pretty shoestring budget, but it was on TV for a number of years. Oh, no, no one outside of the Boston area would have ever seen it. Well, what I'm fascinated by is it seems to have started late in 1979, but one of the things that really intrigues me about it is apparently the theme song was re-recorded every week with local topical news gags in it. Yes, yes, it was. The one or two bits I've tracked online basically have local like goings-on kind of worked into the, into the theme. The theme tune is not particularly great, but they're kind of it's very loosely done in the sense that they can kind of work in like almost like not the Nikon news style kind of clips of the news to like things that are going on. So the one I have, for example, is talking about like local bus issues. You know, there was some sort of bus dispute going on at the time. And then there's one about elephants being fed at a public market. Is really strange because, you know, as of until a few weeks ago, we actually had a replica of Cheers at that same market. So uh, 
things do kind of, I guess, turn around in, in that sense. But yeah, it's a, it's a really weird show. Park Street Under is also the name of, so we, um, Park Street is a main, is a big subway station here in Boston. It's kind of the intersection between everything else. It's kind of in the middle of downtown Boston. And historically, when they built the subway stations, many of them have a station above and a station below. So Park Street Under is actually a perfectly reasonable name for a subway station here in Boston. I think actually the red line platforms at Park Street were called Park Street Under briefly. And so there is that kind of, it has a real enough name. It does seem, I mean, it's, 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 very, it's very local trivia. You wouldn't really know that if you didn't live in the area. But yeah, it's a weird show for sure. And the cast all seem to be local as well. Apparently, they were mostly from the Next Move Theatre Company, who were uh, an established local Boston theatre troupe. The only name I recognise in the whole cast is Steve Sweeney, who is one of those people where people probably wouldn't have any idea who he was. But he frequently turns up in, I think it's best described as small roles in big comedy films. Like, he'll be in things like The Something About Mary or whatever, always playing a shopkeeper or a cop that's got to be funny for two lines. It's quite often him. And he's one of the leads in this. Yeah, he plays a character called Oggy. And Oggy's like the owner of the bar. He's kind of the Sam character, I guess. And yeah, I mean, Steve Sweeney is still around. You still see you know, Steve around around town doing stuff in Boston here. The casting is weird. I mean, it's very kind of cookie cutter in the sense of like, if you know the cast of Cheers, you think about what Cheers has. It has kind of a, you know, a retired baseball player. So then you have a student and you have a, a male guy and you have a, you know, sassy waitress and all those kind of things. And, and yeah, Park Street has all of this, but in a very sort of cheaply made local sitcom that happened to be around right before it. Don't they also have more or less a psychotherapist? And, you know, when you consider Frasier didn't come into Cheers until later on, that does make the whole thing look very suspicious. Apparently, they had hawked the idea around bigger stations are being ignored. And the only reason, supposedly, the creators didn't sue over Cheers is they looked like Cheers was going to be cancelled. And then it suddenly yeah. took off and it was too late. Cheers, you know, famously, first season didn't do very well, I don't think. And, you know, the show picked up again after that. But there's also a talk of at least one of the writers from Park Street Under being also a writer on Cheers. I remember seeing that somewhere at some point. And yet, you know, when you think about, well, I say a couple of years later, it was quite a while later, but the creators of Cheers sued somebody for having robots of people in a bar in a tourist attraction, said it was copying Norman Cliff. There's a little bit of a kind of ironic circle going on there, I think. I thought Norman Cliff, the actors, sued the bar for Oh, was it actually them? Yeah, but if you haven't seen those robots, it's... I've well, I say robots. robots, it's like dummies with moving mouths. They don't look anything like them. A couple of years ago, George Wendt, who plays Norm, was in town signing a book that he'd written. I think it was just called something really generic, like beer, a book, or something like that. It was very, like, <laughs> Was it called tie-in. I get, I, get, I get the feeling that I guess the cast of Cheers do occasionally still just pop into Cheers when they're in town and, and, and get free drinks, I guess. I don't know how that works, but... Yeah, I guess if you want to be mobbed by tourists, the place to go is to be Ted Danson and go Cheers. I'm not sure about this because it's very much, it's shot like, I mean, Cheers was obviously, you know, on that really kind of very 80s film that you got. And it had that wonderful look to it. It looked so grimy and authentic. It looked like America looked at that point, or at least how it looked to me over here, just seeing news footage and so on. But Park Street Under is shot on, as far as I can tell, videotape. Was it a real bar? No, it's a definitely it's definitely a studio set somewhere. I'm guessing at the BCBB. Yeah, it's it's definitely not a real bar. Although Cheers is, you know, Cheers yes. is now a real bar. Uh, and, and in fact, until recently, we had two of them. 
So the original bar that Cheers is, you know, the, the outside location of Cheers in the show is is a real bar. It's still open, it's still functioning today, but the inside is very different to Cheers. But they built a couple of years ago a replica bar of Cheers that sadly has just closed down during the, the whole pandemic. But that had the full look and feel of, of Cheers itself. But yeah, no, this is definitely a set. I'd love to find it somewhere, but you know. It might still be in storage somewhere. Who knows? You quite often find that bits and pieces of the least likely TV shows are knocking around somewhere. There's so little of it out there. And yet it yeah. was in the era when everyone was recording everything in America. They were ahead of us with home video. But also, I was surprised to find it is exactly the sort of thing that would have turned up on Channel 4 in its very early days and you'd have blinked and you'd have missed it because they showed every American sitcom that ran for five episodes, <laughs> tucked away at 3pm on the Saturday and so on. I didn't remember this being on Channel 4, but I was absolutely convinced it would have been. And it appears not to have been. Never been seen since 1980. It's crazy. And the episodes do exist. There is a film archive somewhere in New England. I think it's in Maine. There's a, there's a, a film archive and apparently the episodes are all up there. You know, getting getting hold of them. I don't know how that would how that would work, but you know, I've, I've been trying for a couple of years now to sort of find someone who who knows about this show. And uh, bizarrely, I found uh, a very knowledgeable guy in the form of a bartender at Cheers. He he works there, and he just had a fascination for the show. And so actually, he and I were spending a bit of time over the summer, actually kind of trying to piece together some pieces of, of what we both had to sort of at least double our collections of clips and things. But yeah, it's. It's still not a lot, unfortunately. Well, I was actually going to say as a joke that you need to come up with a zany plot with some wacky regulars and stuff in a bar, but it's actually you've actually done that. Yeah, we actually talked about what it might be like to kind of imagine a finale for the show too, actually. So uh, that's actually something I've been I've been working on a little bit over the last few weeks. It's starting to sort of piece together. Like, I mean, we can I can probably get hold of Steve Sweeney, you know, if we can write something that might be kind of fun to kind of get a few of these people back together again, and we can. I'm sure we can knock off a set equal to or slightly worse than what they have in the show. And, you know, camera technology being what it was, I'm sure I can just film it on my phone and it'll be probably just as good. Probably look better than the quality of the clips I've seen, actually. Right, well, I'm not sure how you view the quality in so many senses of your next choice these days. Now, I have to say again, if you're one of the people that complains when they put noises from computer games in, just skip forward 10 seconds or so on your podcast player, rejoin us after it, but we're having the sounds whether you like it or not. Okay, that was some noises from Terramex, which is a computer game from 1987 where I can't actually tell who originally made it. So, Mark, hopefully you can fill us in. Yeah, Terramex is a really strange game. When I first got my Amstrad CPC back in like 1990, my next door neighbor and my friend at the time had a Spectrum and already had this game on the Spectrum. And it is a really weird game. As far as I can tell, it's made by Grand Slam. The reason I put this on the list is I think when you had Ben Baker on here talking about the adventures of Old P. King, oh, yes. that kind of glare in my mind is like, uh, oh, right, there's a really awful computer game that has kind of very stereotypical and offensive kind of racial caricatures in it. The game itself is pretty fun, but I'd say the designs of the characters and the naming of the characters certainly is not okay. Well, the only name that I'm aware of is apparently the missing character in it. You try to find Professor Albert Eyestrain. So do you dare tell us what any of those other names are? The English character is something like Fortescue Smythe or something like that. So that's not so bad in itself. That's kind of more of a stereotype than anything else. There's an Asian character, Wu Pong, not a great one. A German called Herr Krush. 
and a, a I guess I guess it's supposed to be Russian, but the name doesn't make sense. But Big John Kane. The graphics for these characters are also kind of very very stereotypical in their appearance. I noticed on the cover art as well. There's some tribesmen with bones through their noses, which I'm hoping they don't appear too much in the game. Oh, they appear in the game quite a bit. Yeah. Oh, great. There's, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's the, the game effectively is you kind of traveling around this kind of open world. And there are snakes that jump out at you from stones, and there are these characters with the bones through the noses, and there are other characters you can't run on the way. But basically, you're trying to prevent a meteor hitting the Earth. That's essentially what you're trying to do. So you have to do all these different things. You collect. It's kind of like a dizzy game, right? You kind of collect things along the way, and you, you solve puzzles. There's like a thing where you have to get an umbrella to go under some acid rain, for example. Or you got to find a, an Acme bridge kit to cross this bridge of snakes. And it has kind of a cool interface. It is, it is kind of a, a neat game. I think if they kind of remade it now, they could just kind of replace the characters with some more generic players, and it should be a reasonable game. Each character has a kind of national cliche. So the British the British character has a cricket bat, the German has a beer barrel, the Japanese character has a camera flash, a horse for the American, and a monocle for the French character. I'm not sure I associate monocles with the French, but that's definitely like, yeah, their, their, their attempt at giving you some variation in the game, I guess. But yeah, it's, it's a fun game, for sure, but a, a strange one nonetheless. Well, one thing I really noticed when I started looking into it was that, you know, as you mentioned, it was available for the Amiga, the Atari ST, the Acorn Archimedes, you know, all the, what were, in the context of the late 80s, the up-to-the-minute home PCs, the most technologically forward ones, but it's also available for the Commodore 64 and the Spectrum. Now, the Commodore 64 was already starting to show its age by then. The Spectrum version of this, the graphics, good Lord. I mean, I thought when they did the conversion for the Spectrum of the arcade game Yee Kung Fu in, was it 1985, I think? But I remember thinking, this looks pretty old when that came out. After a certain point, everything on the Spectrum just looks like line drawings, if you want it to look any good. And graphics by the late 80s were so far ahead of that. I mean, I've got a lot of affection for the Spectrum, but it carried on as a gaming concern longer than it should have done, really. There were still games for the Spectrum in the early 90s. I mean, there yeah. was Street Fighter, Street Fighter 2 for the Spectrum exists, which is, is crazy to think. I was so, I guess, militant about my Amstrad CPC that I actually refused to give it up until 1996 you can believe that. Well beyond the era where I should have been using a PC or something else. People are making games with these machines still, which is crazy to me. I think the graphics of the Amstrad version were pretty decent, though, because the Amstrad could do lots of colour, which yeah. uh, the Spectrum suffered from this awful kind of colour clash effect, you know, when things overlapped. So Spectrum games are pretty bland in comparison. The sort of schoolboy in me still wants to say that the Commodore 64 has terrible graphics, although that's just my platform's better than your platform argument, I suppose. Yeah, it's a fun game, and it, you know, it's one of those games that you think an update to that could actually do quite well as a mobile game. It's got a fairly sort of limited number of things you can do. I would like to see it, you know, I guess brought back in some in some fashion for modern computers. Well, I really do wish there was more respect paid to early home computing just full stop. I mean, people barely even reminisce about the games, I find. But when you think about it, it wasn't just limited to gaming because, you know, the BBC Micro was used to do interstitials on children's BBC for a couple of years. Yeah. Things like that. Did you know most of the St. Etienne album, Fox Space Alpha? for their first album was done on the Atari ST. That makes sense. The Atari ST is famously good at MIDI. You know, it had built-in MIDI interface in an era that was not common. And, and so, yeah, a lot of bands used an Atari ST. The Amstrad CPC, for me, I mean, I was using the Amstrad CPC on, on the internet. That's quite mind-blowing. <laughs> you know, I would, I would write HTML on an Amstrad CPC and then copy it to a server 
with my modem in the 90s. Honestly, sometimes I kind of wax lyrically about the idea that things really haven't changed all that much in terms of the web and the internet since that era. But I mean, obviously things have changed a lot. You know, I like to see more of these things kind of given the, the sort of respect they deserve. You know, I think there's an aspect to it where people talk about the games a lot and they focus on the games and they focus on even official the spectrum, they focus on a few games, right? They focus on like, you know, the manic miners of the world and things like that. But there are lots and lots of people doing very cool things and demos. Demos are a big part of that retro scene still. People code demos now. They write demos for these old computers to do things that they were never intended to do. And they're pretty impressive, I think. Well, people even try to do a very primitive form of interactivity. I mean, there are things like every so often that Shaking Stevens game that was on one of his albums for the Spectrum will resurface on Twitter. You know, it says, oh no, a bat bit you. But people <laughs> right. like kind of, oh my God, what were they thinking? They were thinking Shaking Stevens was popular because he really was around then. And they right. thought, wouldn't it be a great idea to have a game? on my album there was Chris Seavey who was later Frank Sidebottom he tried to do kind of an interactive album very this is how early it was you've probably heard this yourself but his album Camouflage had the ZX81 program on it which kind of had the lyrics not quite synchronised with the music but you could view them in tandem with it all kinds of things like that went on people were trying people were absolutely trying to well there was was it called The Chip Shop on Radio 4 where it was a computer news program where it ended, can you believe this, with a very short piece of taped code playing out that you're supposed to tape and load into your computer. Yeah, I mean, there was that, and those things were always kind of interesting because they were for, you know, the BBC micro typically, right? But Frank Sidebottom literally was created as a piece of another game that he was working on called The Biz, right? So he... That's right, yes. ...had uh, in the game, Frank Sidebottom is a fan of the Freshies, and I think he ended up putting Frank Sidebottom on the other side of the table. It wasn't, wasn't used for the game. Yeah, Pete Shelley has another one of those kind of things that syncs up with the spectrum. And Radiohead did it recently, with them, like a couple of years ago, they did a bit of a tape that does something with one of their deluxe editions of one of their records. So people are, people are doing it. How we got there from Terramax, I don't know. <laughs> but games then were quite, they're more intricate and more fun than they're given credit for now, I think. I remember yeah. losing hours playing things like, well, Nodes of Yesod is the really big one that I always go back to on the spectrum. That demanded your time, like nobody else's business. But something like this is on quite a big scale, really. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, there are playthrough videos online of this game, but like, it does take a couple of hours to get through. And it, there is a lot of, those kind of games had a lot of backtracking, right? I remember Dizzy Games in particular had infamous, like, lots of backtracking. You have to go get an axe from somewhere and you got to go back like 17 screens to get the axe and bring it back 17 more screens to like cut the tree down or whatever but they're actually they're pretty engaging in an era where you know like a game like this would cost you know four or five pounds maybe so buy it full price and it would come out later on on the budget label but you're definitely going to get your money's worth i think out of a game like this it's just it's kind of a shame that they should sort of have those uh those stereotypes and otherwise it's it'd be a pretty fun game in itself yeah and even by 1987 they shouldn't really have had stereotypes like that in, let's be honest about it yeah i mean i played it as a kid and, you know, and i i didn't like it I, I didn't quite know why i didn't like it but it felt weird to me at the time even as a kid so yeah it's definitely yeah it's almost like a game from another era if the 1950s could produce a video game this would be it i guess okay well we're moving on now to a band who tried a slightly different kind of interactivity we're going to introduce them with a clip that i remember actually watching go out not only that i was that obsessed with this band which we'll come back to in a minute i recorded this for many years afterwards i had this on video and i'm really pleased to be able to include it here it's just a regular phone machine with songs of ours well why did that start well it initially started because uh, we had a series of accidents john 
had his apartment broken into and his gear was stolen and I had broke my wrist in a bike accident. So we couldn't perform and we had to get our music out to the people somehow. We believe you, but we're going to demonstrate this right now because I have brought the little phone in. So go on, do you want to dial the right. number on there? Through the uh, magic of uh, cellular phones here. Now, this number is available in all your albums, Yes, it? it's the special secret buy the album and get the number free. Yes, exactly. I like it. Uh, okay, you press send there as well. Okay. Typical BBC, this is in my phone yep. they're using. Now, that's being culturally suppressed by the BBC. Brooklyn's Ambassadors of Love, They Might Be Giants, performing voice their very first song high. on their very first demo, Now That I Have Everything. Okay, that was They Might Be Giants, John and John, being interviewed on BBC One's The 815 from Manchester. Matt, why have I put that here? I remember this episode like you do. And I think what I remember the most about it was that there was this part where you could have, they have this thing called the dial-a-sun service, where you would call a number, overseas number, for sure in the United States, and you could hear one person at a time could be connected to this answer machine, and you could hear these very lo-fi renditions of their songs over the phone, which just seems like the most awesome thing in the world at the time I saw that go out in like 1990 I think it was yeah and it was pretty soon after they come to any kind of public attention at all really because they were very much sort of they were a band that I was aware existed not even John Peel played them really Janice Long did and possibly Mark Goodyear when he started. Actually, they might have slightly predated the evening session. But Birdhouse and Your Soul seemed to come out of nowhere in the first couple right. of weeks of 1990. And it's interesting what then happened with them. Because I remember I heard that on, I can't even remember who played it, but I heard it on Radio 1 on a Saturday morning. And I went into town that day to buy it from our price. And I remember sitting in McDonald's afterwards, like looking at this record record thinking oh i wonder what hot char the b-side sounds like <laughs> and there were actually some girls sat on the same table were saying what's that record and i said what it was one of them said how come i've never heard of them in the charts which is a fair question really but you no know, i got it home i loved it i thought hot char was a bit weird but i still quite liked it i then got flood the album which i loved but i immediately knew when i heard it that there was all this promotional weight behind them and it wasn't an album that was going to sell to the sort of people who like that one stray hit and that's been yeah. pretty much their career ever since i think a huge pr machine swinging in behind when they occasionally write something really chart friendly and the rest of it is just too weird for the general public well i mean flood is their first album on a major label so they have yeah. two before that and then they have a couple of major label albums and then around 1996, 97 they kind of leave major labels again and go back to kind of independent stuff they are predominantly known i guess to the general public for a few songs Third House in Your Soul being one of them. Boss of Me, which is used as the theme tune to Malcolm in the Middle. A couple of videos were made by the guys who did Tiny Toon Adventures. And they did a couple of videos to uh, Particle Man and I forget the other one, but there's a couple of like Tiny Toons videos that were like... The cool thing about those, those guys is they've never really stopped doing anything. They're still doing stuff now. And they've kind of fallen into a nice format, I think, where they kind of produce a kid's album and then an adult album and then they tour and then they release some bits online, and they kind of repeat that cycle over and over again. That dial song thing is what really caught me. The catchphrase was, free when you call from work, which is... Uh, <laughs> certainly, John Flansburg has a very, like, 
anti-work, anti-boss kind of theme for a lot of their songs. Minimum wage is on that, on that album. I mean, it's like a sound of a whip being cracked, you know? And so, yeah, it's telling, I guess, that they, uh, it's free when you call from work. It's a pretty cool slogan, though, I have to say. Well, minimum wage is one of the two things I've always used when, you know, if you're, let's say, a boring business function or something feeling a bit out of place and you're thinking, is anyone here on my wavelength? One of the things is to shout never, ever, and see if somebody says bloody anything ever. The other is to shout minimum wage and see if somebody says yee-haw. <laughs> that way you have found somebody to talk to, which is always welcome. I have to give that a try, I guess, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Tyler's song is a, is a pretty cool idea, and sadly it's no longer really around anymore, I think. They had a hard time kind of sourcing the particular hardware to, to record the stuff on, I and mean, it went briefly digital, and I think now it's just a website. But I mean, I guess in the era of everyone's on the internet all the time, doesn't really make sense to have a phone number anymore but it does seem a little sad that you're no longer the only one listening when you call that number so what songs were on there when you called particularly the first time that you called i'm intrigued by the first time i called was from a phone box and i must have put three or four quid into this phone box to call this number and it was so so you know in the early 90s calling the united states from the uk was so expensive yeah like, think about that now but like phone calls would be like if you had a relative or a friend in another country you might call up for 30 seconds and say hi merry christmas good night by click and put the phone down you know but i think i got managed to get an, about a minute and a half or two minutes out of it and there was a song that they later released way 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 later called ant which is about an ant crawling up someone's head. The songs weren't the same as the ones you hear on the album. They were actually recorded specifically into the machine itself, I think, because there was certain frequencies would like disturb the recording. Is what I, is what I understand. So they had to like re-record them like especially kind of tight and kind of lo-fi and at a certain volume to get them to work. Did you know why they had that service at all in the first place? The reason they had it, as I understand it, is that Linnell was doing his day job as a bike messenger and broke his hand, and so they couldn't play any gigs for a while. And so as a way of getting something out there, they just put an ad in the local paper in the village voice and said basically like they might be giants i'm in a phone number i don't know if you've heard that there's a track on one of their albums where it's a lady talking into like an answer phone and that's actually from like the machine itself like after the song finished playing she had them on like a three-way call with somebody else and so it just kept recording what she was saying and so they just took it and like they have apparently like 40 minutes or something of her talking about the band but we just took a snippet of it and put it on the album yeah it's kind of a fascinating approach to like you know figuring out you know you know you have this kind of can't play a gig so what you do you, you record something on a, on a phone and stick it in the paper and hopefully people will call in and, and find it it seemed to work for them and there was a brief phase where i mean they never quite took off over here there was birdhouse and your soul and a couple of near hits like the statue got me high a snail shell certainly got a lot of play on radio one but they seem to be quite popular with unlikely tv shows you know you wouldn't have seen them on Wogan or anything but they turn up on things like the 815 from Manchester tonight with Jonathan Ross which I also taped when they were on that all kinds of radio shows you wouldn't expect it was like they were prepared to do the shows that nobody else really wanted to do and in turn those shows were really glad to happen because they were always good value they always had something interesting to say and a funny way of saying it yeah it's funny you know when I saw them live in London a couple of times at the Astoria funny the people you see at these things you'd see the likes of Jonathan Ross kind of would show up to these concerts because they would do very few touring dates in the UK so when they would come to London that would be often where you'd see a lot of the people in the media who would put them on who would be there in the audience I think I saw Louis Theroux at one on Adam and Joe maybe as well at one of their concerts yeah you know it's it's funny because over here they, they tour constantly and so I've, I think I've probably I think I've seen them like nearly 60 times live now which is crazy I've definitely gone to like multiple shows in like multiple weeks 
for the same album, which is always fun experience. And you know, it's and they and they, they do provide a great deal of value, you know, as you say. Well, I remember being thrilled when very early on on Mark Radcliffe's late night Radio One show, the Graveyard Shift, as it was informally known, they were on promoting John Henry, which was a I hesitate to say it was a slightly more serious album, but you know what I mean by that, don't you? It was yeah, more yeah. more structured, more straightforward songs, things like Why Must I Be Sad was on there and so on. They did a couple of songs from that in session and they'd obviously been listening to the show because you know he had quite an eccentric playlist and there'd be new indie releases there'd also be 60s garage stuff and prog rock and so on and earlier in that show he played the Frank Zappa track he'd also played Nantucket Sleigh Ride by Mountain which is the Weekend World theme and they'd obviously been listening to what he was playing because they spontaneously went into Frankenstein by the Edgar Winter Group he was thrilled by that Mark Radcliffe he was absolutely made up and I love the fact they just adapted so quickly to you know they got the sense of the show and they just yeah. tailored what they were doing to that and I really loved that that's not something you catch people doing that often I don't think I don't think I've seen them live uh, at least recently but one of the things they did for a while on their live shows would basically take a radio on stage plug it in to the sound system and like tune around the radio and find kind of a song that was playing on the local radio somewhere and just listen to it for a few seconds and then just kind of dim the radio and just carry on playing it making up the words on, on the spot but they were kind of sound like but the country song it sounds really fantastic they're just, they're just making up the lyrics as they go along and kind of playing a generic country song but it's, it sounds great okay well around the time john henry came out was i think when you think you saw your next choice where i found no evidence of this at all so here's a very 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 tangentially related advert for around the time you'll find my phone number on the side of the can you dirty little boy. Okay, that was another for Virgin Cola. Don't go out and get any. A, because you can't get it anymore, and B, because it was horrible. But, Matt, why have I put that there? I'm convinced in the mid-90s there was a cola-flavoured spread jam stuff thing available briefly. I grew up in Devon, and I think we were kind of one of those parts of the country where there was sort of test market stuff at us sometimes. So it could be one of those things that came and went, and no one, no one really bought it. But I remember it being like a Nutella-type product, but it was cola-flavoured. I remember wanting it, but it was in an era where I was not allowed cola shall we say due to being a hyperactive child i think it existed but you know maybe i just remembered it incorrectly well that's the one thing that convinces me that it existed was the fact that you wanted it so badly and weren't allowed it yeah don't make up things that you want and are denied there's an absolute childhood burning injustice not being allowed them and you remember these things so it must have existed but any idea who might have made it was it a supermarket owned branding we did all the shopping at the time in tesco so it would have been a tesco i don't I can't see Tesco making it. Again, the branding of it, like uh, talking about, you know, before, like the Wake Up Early Being Jonathan thing, the thing I remember the most about these things are like the colours, the bright, the bright colours of these things. And so like, I remember the vivid packaging again, which again, does not really smack of Tesco in the 90s, right? That's very like blue and white and kind of red and uniform. And, and this was definitely like something that was kind of aimed at kids. But yeah, I remember it also being on quite a high shelf in the grocery store, which suggests that maybe they put it there to stop kids from grabbing it. Well, again, you see, I would be thinking how would that work what purpose would it serve who would want it but then you go and look at what you can get spreads of in well tesco these days and it would not seem outlandish next to the biscoffy spread we're thinking about the united states and living where i live in you know in the united states and in the northeast is that a lot of things that are american staples now came in like they're from here originally and so like there are lots of like weird local companies that kind of made stuff for the longest time but still just kind of 
are around just churning out things. Have you ever had a Tootsie Roll? I have had a Tootsie Roll, yes. So the Tootsie Roll factory is at the end of my old street, and I moved about a year and a half ago. But it's just this white building with no windows, and if you go right up to the door, there's a little tiny sign, and it just says, like, Tootsie Roll Company on the on But it smells of Tootsie Rolls the whole time. So, like, there are lots of these things that are around here that, yeah, I can imagine cola spread being a hit, honestly, if they brought it out nowadays. Yeah, I, I just can't think. First off, like, would it have been, like, a special, like, a one-off thing? But, again, like, it seems like an awful lot of work to put into making something like that that was for a limited time. But, again, maybe they're just trying it out and seeing, seeing how it did. Well, there were quite a few things around them where, you know, it was that whole time of, I think this is one of the primary reasons Britpop happened. Nothing to do with any of the stupid motives people ascribe now when they're trying to get clicks by, you know, implying Blur was secretly racists or whatever. One of the things was that anything American, no matter how ridiculous it was, was to be revered, particularly foodstuffs. You know, you get those mm. those dreadful Coke and Pepsi adverts that peddled the kind of Americana teen stuff that had no resonance over here. There were things like Tab Clear was launched in a big blaze of publicity and did nothing. Pop-Tarts, you could not move for people pushing Pop-Tarts <laughs> at one point. Yeah, and I remember that. Cola spread would go hand in hand with that. It will, You know, the way it would have been marketed was kind of, hey kids, wow, it's cola, but now you're going to have it in a sandwich just like in America. Right, just like in America. You know, Arrested Development has that wonderful parody of We Britain, right, where everyone has a oh, yes. American <laughs> restaurant where everyone drinks these massive colas and has donuts and it gets it so right and so wrong at the same time and yeah I can, I can definitely see that I remember like not that long ago you know in London there were these like American candy stores right and you go in there and you'd pay like you know seven quid for a Mountain Dew or something like that because it was American you couldn't get it anywhere else yeah I can I, I, actually that might be that maybe what, maybe what it was maybe it was branded like you think of it as being branded like very bold and brash like the American flag or something like that yeah I don't know I'd love to, I'd love to know if anyone's ever heard of it let alone tried it I can't imagine it was very good I can tell you that I always find there is somebody somewhere listening to this who has tried it somebody in fact i can think of a couple of previous guests who will have had cola spread if it was available where they were shopping we might solve your mystery yet i mean would you still like to try it now i would try it in a heartbeat i would look at the ingredients i guess first just to make sure it wasn't something terribly terribly awful in it but i would i would give it a go you know why not right what's the worst that could happen it's funny actually one thing i've been doing in the last sort of year or two has been doing this thing where there are lots of things i haven't ever tried and so i'm um, trying them for the first time and then tweeting about it. Fascinating to try, you know, some of these American products. But I do say that, you know, I do secretly still have my mum send me a big box of stinger bars and crunchies and stuff from time to time because I do, I do find that my tongue still prefers the taste of British candy for sure. Okay, well, it's quite possible that cola spread might actually disappeared after being banned because people always try to ban things for no reason in the 80s and 90s, including your last choice. I think these should have been banned before they even existed, but. We'll come back to that in a minute. Once upon a time, or was it more recently, there was a young boy named Dodger. He was the sort of child who was always left out of things. Each day after school, Dodger works in a junk shop owned by the mysterious Captain Mancini. Which is broth and vampire's brew. Make these clothes as good as new. Dodger has never had a family or a friend he could call his own. Until now.
Garbage Pail Kids. Okay, that was the trailer for the Garbage Pail Kids movie. If you're curious, don't. Seriously, don't. Garbage Pail Kids, if anyone doesn't know, they were kind of trading cards based on the Cabbage Patch Kids, but we'll describe them in more detail in a minute. But Mark, why were they such an endangered species? So in my little town in Devon, they were, for whatever reason, there was a brief moment in time where they were the big enemy number one. Some kid at my high school, not high school, my primary school, his dad had, I guess, seen them, that he had them, and, and whatever, and was disgusted by them. And it made the local news, and the local news agent <laughs> guy that was selling them was like, on there and he's like well, I'm just you know, these are just stickers the kids buy like it's not my fault that you don't like them and I think at that point they'd actually been renamed to the garbage gang in England I have a recollection that they, the name got changed because of I'm guessing some kind of trademark thing with the cash pack dolls yeah they banned them briefly and you had to be 16 I think to buy them at that point they were under the counter like they were some kind of salacious narcotic or something like that but yeah it's the idea that we ban stickers is such a such a bizarre one well for anyone who's not seen them and again I'm not recommending googling them but i'll just run through a few of the ones that are stuck in my mind to give you some idea what there was like there was corroded charlie who was a child just hideously scarred by acne was the best way of putting it melton john who was basically a child who was a candle of elton john that was melting ray gunn who was a child with ronald reagan style lines across his face and republican hair hunted hunter which i think was not a child's head on like a trophy i don't remember that there are hundreds of these they were absolutely hideous as Ben Baker previous guest once said the most disturbing thing is there is no backstory you don't find out what happened to these children to get them into this position and they were hideous I was slightly too old for the craze for them and I just thought these are awful these are horrible I mean I don't think for a second anyone should be banning them but they were grotesque they are grotesque for sure and actually I actually have in my hand here a couple hundred of them I actually collect with these things I will say I do collect them to this day and they still break they still make new ones from that time to time and whenever I see them in shop I go by the whole lot because they're kind of wonderfully disgusting in a weird way but sadly they're not actually stickers anymore they're just cards nowadays which just kind of loses some of the appeal you know the, the appeal for me at least was like you could stick them on stuff you could kind of gross out someone for a minute by having them but yeah just, they're just cards nowadays but what's crazy is I mean you know you mentioned the movie the, the movie exists of course the movie is terrible I do recommend people do watch it though it is it's it's frightfully terrible but it's worth watching I think there's also a cartoon and I actually managed to track down that on DVD I think a couple of years ago and so I actually have that I can't say I've ever watched it beyond episode one to be honest with you it's not very good but yeah now the idea of banning stuff to me is it seems like such a weird point in time that we could locally ban stickers one of the things that sticks in my mind growing up in the UK in the 80s and 90s is that like there used to be weird bans on stuff right you remember the ban on ninjas and nunchucks that's just like not a thing that exists like when I talk to people about that over here like they don't realize the BBC had such power over the kind of broadcasting sensibilities of the, of the country that they would ban stuff and they would rename stuff right like we talk about boss cat a lot just the renaming of stuff is weird and the banning of stuff is America has its own weird bans and stuff of course you know people burn records and things and they get mad about the Beatles and things but I'm not aware of like a local ban on something so mundane as stickers well it could have been in the wake of the whole video nasties thing which I'll come back to in a second was in a sense kind of until they actually brought in legislation was localised because it would be a video shop owner in somewhere was prosecuted for having the evil dead and I don't know blood feast or something and they'd usually be found not guilty but it was like a it was like a local reaction I think people got a bit high 
buy off that and they probably did try to do local bands of things like this because this would have just been a couple of years later and you know you probably got to be a bit of a local celebrity for a bit if you're campaigning against garbage pale kids how did that poor news agent get on was he hounded out of business i don't think he was i think he ended up doing just fine out of it honestly and actually i, I found him on facebook a couple of years ago and we actually <laughs> him a little bit about it and i was like what are you doing now and he's like well you know i'm not selling sweets anymore and i'm like oh, that's, that's fair enough i suppose but i guess i should also say that the one thing about my town that also is weird is that we are i think unique in a sense that we had a monster raving loony party mayor for a couple of years <laughs> The guy who took over the party after Lord Such died, Alan Hope, was the mayor of my town. Not during the era of the ban on the garbage gang, I should say. I like to think that if he was, he would have overturned it immediately and made Garbage Pail Kids compulsory or something. It is true, though, that, I mean, I think you can't really ban things anymore in that kind of way. There's no way you're doing it. It's not effective. But things used to get banned all the time back then. It's like the thing Stephen Fry always says about what does banned actually mean, because, you know, people are forever saying Stephen Fry should be banned well what from and how and how's that enforced but it was kind of things like you know you get frankie goes to hollywood were restricted to very limited play on radio one not on top of the pot like i say there were video nasties there was as we were talking about just before we started recording hardwick house which was the itv sitcom two episode show taken off air never allowed back on air and i think there's an extent to which you're actually creating more interest than you would have had previously because you know i spent years and years and years wanting to see things like the bogeyman and cannibal terror because i'd seen the covers of them in video shops being a bit scared thought what is that film and then suddenly there's mps on the news saying these terrible films would be taken out of circulation and you know i always wanted to see them i was obsessed with seeing hardwick house for years i own all the frankie goes to hollywood records which i might not do had there not been that controversy associated with them and obviously, I'm going to wager that your interest in Garbage Pail Kids and the Garbage Gang was kind of fostered by this band. I would say so, too. I think there were many, many of these kind of sticker things that were stickers and gum around at the time. There was like Ninja Turtles ones and there were, what was you say? Sorry, Hero Turtles, because of course we can't have ninjas <laughs> for English, right? And there were, you know, stickers for football, of course, always around. But yeah, the Garbage Gang, I don't know what it was. They just I guess they appealed to me in the sense of like, you know, I'm going to have a, a 20p packet of stickers and gum. It's going to be the kind of fratefully ghoulish looking ones but i don't know they always seem kind of fun also the, the names of them right you, could, you know the, the fact that they had often had real people's names on them was kind of a, a selling point too because you could find one with your own name on it and stick it on something or you could find your mates names and stick them on things you probably, probably, probably hit me on the head though, honestly i think the idea of banning stuff probably does, does interest me more i think you know i would buy something if i knew it was limited in quantity or limited in circulation just so that i could have it and eventually you know find the time to scan it and stick it online somewhere because wouldn't it be cool if we could all see these things that were banned well just as a closing thought then who would you say is your favorite garbage pail kit i would have to say tv stevie is my favorite one it's a kid with a giant tv set for a head matt it's been brilliant thank you awesome well at least it's free a big book of columns and features by tim worthington more details at timworthington.org